0: Heavenly Father, thank you for these texts, and thank you for this community, for the opportunity that we have to gather and to study. And so I pray that your spirit would continually illuminate for us insights and wisdom, but again, also uh, things that we can leverage for how we can honor you, even in this day and age, as we study these ancient texts. So uh, we bless you, we ask for your presence here, and we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, The sacred and the profane, also known as the bathroom and the operating room. Leviticus chapter 12 starting in verse 1 the entire chapter the Lord said to Moses speak to the Israelites a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days just as she is unclean during her monthly period on the eighth day the boy is to be circumcised then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering, And a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her. And then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. One for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her. And she will be clean. The word of the Lord. And all the people said, "Ah, What? What did we just read? Do any of these passages go on bumper stickers? Do any of these passages make a life verse? What are we talking about? And let me just say right out at the front of this. Uh, For as long as I've been pastoring and teaching and reading and all this kind of stuff, here's my—I'm going to answer right up front. What is this passage all about? Here's my answer. I have no idea, haven't a clue. You know, in even in the midst of these particular things, here you got a passage where ceremonially unclean women are no longer are not allowed to enter into the sanctuary, not allowed to come to the holy, not even allowed to touch. Anything that's supposed to be. If it's for a boy, it's only seven days and 33 days after that. But then if it's for a girl, it's twice that, 14 and and 66. And one of the big things, and we're going to get to this a little bit, one of the big things that happens is that you you read these passages, and because we have in our mind this construct that this is the Word of God inspired um, basic instructions before leaving earth, if you've heard that acronym, B I B L E. So we have in our mind that, okay, here's a passage that we can use and it's relevant for today. And honestly, you know, you look at this and you go, I I don't know. And it's okay to kind of shrug your shoulders and say, what's going on here? And some people actually look at passages like this, and if you're critical of faith Uh, If you're critical of spirituality, if you're even critical of the Bible and all that kind of stuff, I think it's easy to point to passages like this and conclude there's some really weird stuff going on and things that we possibly need to leave behind. Things like either a patriarchal system or some sort of misogynistic uh, attitudes towards women and all these different types of things. So. I just want to say at the out front, I really have no idea. I'm not exactly quite sure what's going on in these passages. I'm going to do my best to try to illuminate some context, bring us back up to speed a little bit of what the book of Leviticus is doing, and see if we can enter into their world, which is going to be a key thing for a little bit for today, and then we'll bring it into our world. Often we try to get this book that we carry around with us in these sacred texts to immediately enter into our world. Get in here. What do you have to say to the Google self-driving car that's going through my neighborhood right now? And clearly, you must be relevant at that particular moment. Um, But if we're going to be faithful and honorable to the text, we actually have to stop first and get back into their world and to see what was going on, what was happening there, and what would they have thought or have seen. So we're going to do a little bit of that And then we're going to try to take a principle of some of the principles that are going and then see if we can find some parallels to our world. So that's a little bit of our track. All without necessarily answering the question, we know exactly what this passage means. So I just want you to hold that loosely and for us to come to some understandings that the discussion about passages like this, I think, can continue on. And I'm sure some of you will Google something or Yahoo something or Bing something, and you'll be able to enlighten me with some of the things that you find. First, let's remember where we've come from. We've been going through Leviticus for about six or seven weeks now. We all started with the first couple chapters which were offerings and rituals. And if you remember for those of you for those of you who are here in the beginning, the word for offering is the word korban, which means karov to come close. So the beginning of Leviticus is about these offerings and these rituals but the subtext underneath all of those things is a God who is desiring to draw close to you. And rituals and traditions are ways in which we get to draw close. The second portion, and we've covered a couple of these passages, were all about the priesthood and what is holy. And about places that are holy, people that are holy, doing traditions and rituals that remind us of the sacredness of particular places, spaces, and times. We're actually going to touch on that a little bit today. And now as we move into chapters 11 and beyond, we're now getting into segments that are known as the purity segment. So offerings and rituals, the kinds of behaviors that we do to draw close, priests and holiness, recognizing that there are spaces and places of sacredness and Other spaces, and then purity. This is about you and me. This is about how we carry ourselves, what is upon us, and you'll get to see some of that play out today. So that's a little bit of what's going on. Remember, drawing close, and then today as we enter into the purity laws a little bit more, it's a question of, first of all last week that Danielle started, what is it that you eat? And the purity laws begin to turn the focus and attention toward us. And we've been spending some time attending up and attending out. And now we're going to spend some time attending here. How we see, how we view. So first thing, what is it that you eat? What is allowed to be eaten? What is not allowed to be eaten? Are you paying attention to what's going in your body? What is it that you discharge? And I'm terribly sorry I couldn't find any better word than discharge. It's just the word that's used in the NIV. I'm sorry about that. I apologize. What you emit, what comes out of you, there's just no nice way of putting it. What it is that, and, and starting to pay attention to those things, not that, you know, again, this is very uncomfortable for us, not that you really want to pay attention to all of those things, but the text is asking us to take, take uh, consideration of that. What it is that you look like, that's going to come in chapters 13 and 14, regarding what's on your skin, what's on the outside of you, what, what is it, are you carrying something around, and we'll get to those passages in a couple weeks regarding disease. And then this Chapter 14, 15. What's in your house? There's this whole segment on molds. And these are known as purity laws. And it's very easy for us to see these things as what's right or what's wrong. But again, take a look at the movement. Offerings and practices. Spaces that are holy. And now we turn our attention here. Leviticus, in many ways, is trying to heighten our consciousness. Pay attention to the rituals and the practices. Do they draw you close? Do they pull you away? Take a look at how you see spaces and places and times. Do you recognize those spaces and places and times as holy and sacred? Take a look at yourself, how you eat, how you behave. This is, Do you recognize what it does, what it represents, and how it affects your community? We were, we were with a bunch of friends uh, recently, and uh, I said, "Can I get you any dinner?" And he said, "No, no, thanks." And they had this sheepish look on their face. We ate at McDonald's on our way here. <laughs> now, if you know anything about our household, McDonald's is like, worse than defiled meant. It is, it is like whatever's beyond unclean you know, and there's no condemnation because they're good friends of ours, I was, but we were like, okay, you've eaten at McDonald's, you must now go purify yourself before we can even <laughs> hang out together. The moment was really beautiful because they knew that there was a heightened awareness, and m- by the way, I just got to confess, it's Danielle that's done all of this work in our family. I was the guy that ate McDonald's and Jack in the Box and Taco Bell all the time, 10 tacos times 2, 20 tacos, oh, it was Hot sauce on every single taco. Mm, it's good stuff. I'll take care of it later. Pepto Bismol off the shelf. Everything will be fine. And something happened. <laughs> I'm getting an amen from Marcus back there. And something happened. She began to heighten my awareness. And as a result of that heightened awareness, I actually now start paying attention to the things that I eat. I start paying attention to the things that I consume. That is Leviticus, an awakening, a a heightening, a consciousness that is coming forth. Okay, so let's get into this passage. Here's, again, like I said, no answers. Um, You have this passage where if a woman gives childbirth, uh, they go through a purification time, seven days plus 33 if it's a boy, 14 days plus 66 days it's a girl immediately you should be counting. One of the things that several people point out, and you can do this math on your own, is that if you add up the numbers, they actually equal numbers that are resonant throughout the Bible. What does the number 40 represent? 40 represents purification or testing. Oftentimes it's a trial. Oftentimes it's a a season that God has set apart to do something within an individual. 40 days, 40 nights, 40 weeks, etc., etc., etc. So the first thing that pops up in our minds is that Uh, This is something that has to do with the purification, has something to do with testing, has something to do with recognizing that something is in a different place, something needs to be purified before it can enter into that special place. So those numbers, I think, are important to pay attention to. The Hebrew word behind the word uh, unclean is the word tameh. Everybody say tameh. In Jewish circles, sometimes you'll hear the word tumah, which comes from the same particular root. It shows up about 268 times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and look at how many times it shows up in Leviticus. It should tell you something about the importance of this particular book, and it tells you the importance of this particular word 150 times. Now, what's important to understand is this word tame does not mean sin, does not mean wrongdoing, does not mean guilt which is usually the first thing that we, in our Western ears, hear when we hear the word unclean. Something is wrong with you. You did something. You are wrong. But remember, those guilt offerings come earlier. There's a separate kind of thing uh, that happens in Leviticus for the guilt offerings or for the sin offerings. So this word, tame, which means unclean or ritually impure, does not mean sin. It does not mean wrongdoing. It does not mean guilt. So Immediately, for those of us who look at this passage and immediately uh, conclude misogyny or there's something wrong with the, the perspective about girls versus boys, we're starting to take one step away from that because it's not about guilt, it's not about sin, or it's not about wrongdoing. It is about ritual impurity, that which is ceremonially unclean. Remember the entire trek that we've gone through so so far includes rituals and traditions, the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of activity that you do to symbolize something special and to symbolize something that's meaningful. So this particular word isn't because giving birth to a girl or giving birth to a boy is something wrong. There's something else going on there that is causing this woman to be ritually or ceremonially unclean. You are not allowed to participate in something that is holy or sanctimonious as a result of what you've done in that particular, uh, what, what you've done in giving birth. And the key passage comes in, and I don't know if you heard it or not, she is to remain unclean as in her days of her menstrual cycle. So we know that the birthing portion, through the either through the boy or through the girl, is not the point. The point is that something is symbolic about, again, what it is that we discharge from our body. So, first thing that we have to understand, number one, is that tame does not mean anything that's wrong. But the second thing is, the thing that causes her to be ritually impure is not the birthing process. It is what comes with the birthing process. (laughs) Which is essentially the loss of blood. To the ancient mind, as best as we understand it, Any discharge that has the symbolic resonance and definition and meaning of life, when it leaves your body, is essentially the symbol of death. So, for these ancient Israelites, it is not that something's wrong. It is not that something's disgusting. The word for defiled, or the word for impure, or the word for unclean means that symbolically what has happened to you is there's a symbol and a a picture of life that has left your body. And if anybody bleeds, and for some of us in this room, even the sight of blood causes us to get a little woozy, because blood itself is a symbol of life. And if it leaves your body, that is a symbol of death. So the point is simply this. When something, and by the way, in other passages, there's other, and I'm trying to be discreet here, it's really hard, there's other bodily fluids that don't make you unclean. There's only bodily fluids that, to the ancient mind and even to our modern mind, have within them the sense of life. So fundamentally what's going on is when that life leaves the body, when that symbol leaves the body, it's a symbol of death. If you carry around, therefore, the symbol of death, not that you yourself are the symbol of death, but the very act of losing that fluid is the symbol of death, then at that particular moment, it is improper for you to then go into places that are symbols of life, to go into places and participate in activities that are the symbols of growth, fertility, all those things. And the sanctuary was that place. Where you go to get life from God. So the symbol of death should not enter into a symbol of life. In other words, this whole activity is not wrong. It's just out of place. It's not the right place to be. By the way, in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph followed this ritual. On the, day, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, that's resonant back to this passage of Leviticus chapter 12. He uh, he was named Jesus, the name of the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses. So even in our New Testament, we see that this particular passage is still being practiced, still being honored. That which is a symbol of death should not enter into a place that is the symbol of life. And notice this at the very end, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, that's Leviticus 12, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So that little hint there is another hint that we know that Joseph and Mary were poor, because that was the sacrifice for the poor people. Now what I'd like to share with you is a little bit of this idea and space, uh, the idea that there are sacred spaces and profane spaces. Now Danielle talked a little bit about this when she gave her message High Voltage a couple weeks ago about God's power and how we don't often recognize or acknowledge God's power in these sacred places. And today I'd like to push that one step further and to talk about, well, then what are those places? What are those spaces? What are those places that are sacred? And what are those places that are profane? And when we hear these words sacred and profane, we sometimes, again, it's so hard for us not to get out of our minds good and bad. What we are talking about is, what does this place symbolize? versus what does this place symbolize by the way both places very necessary and central to the life amen i mean this is a beautiful celebration of life and if you don't go here you don't have life <laughs> so both of them are invocations of the way life lives and works the sacred there are moments when this is necessary and the profane the common the everyday. And you wouldn't use this clothing here. And you wouldn't use this clothing here. You have the sacred, that which symbolizes the highest levels of office, of government, of responsibility. And then you have the profane, where you just build a fort out of both of these. Extremely important to life. Both of these. Extremely critical to giving this world meaning and purpose. Government. Play the sacred and the profane, (laughs) the sacred and the profane, the sacred and the profane, the sacred and the profane, (laughs) the sacred. And both of those are really needed. And both of those are necessary. But one should live in that place. And the other should stay in that place. The sacred and the profane. (laughs) Thought you'd like that one. And then pay attention to this one. The sacred and the profane. Notice I made both of them show up at the same time. I just want to... You get to decide which one is the sacred and which one is the profane. For every single one of these, there are spaces that require a particular tradition, a particular ritual, a particular way in which life should act, should behave. And in the other places, they require a completely different set. Neither one of these is intrinsically or necessarily bad. One of them happens to be sacred. One of them happens to be profane. And by profane, we can simply mean common every day, but both of them are just as, as equal. If I had to push this analogy why blood and the excretion of blood doesn't belong in the sanctuary, doesn't belong in the holy place, it would be this, an operating room where you go in to make sure that everything, that when you come out of this place, you have received life. You have received everything that you need to go back into everyday life healthier, full of life. But in order for that to happen, you have to make sure that every single one of those instruments, every single one of those workers, every single one, everything that goes into that room is purified. Because if it's not purified, then the entire integrity of what's going on in that operating room is compromised. And you don't go into the operating room to play sports or to play the vuvuzela. You don't go into the operating room to just color on the wall. You go into the operating room to get life. And you go into the sanctuary, you go into the tabernacle and you go make your sacrifices and you participate in all these rituals and these ancient israelites understood that you do all of these things to go get life and if there was ever anything that was to compromise the sanctity the purity the holiness of that that became unclean and it is to remain outside of that to remain separate for a period of time So that the sacred, the holy, that which gives life, can maintain its integrity, can maintain its purity. And that's exactly what the tabernacle and all these places are. It's at this particular point that maybe we can draw it in together. We put up a couple images for us to consider. But what are some areas of your life, bring it in practically, that are sacred? And what are some areas of your life that are profane? And then, what are some activities, behaviors, rituals that you have where somehow the profane has creeped into the sacred? I know for some families, especially when raising children, that moment with your child or around the dinner, dinner table is that moment that is sacred. And that darn cell phone that comes in that is the profane everyday common For some people, the rule is that is now unclean because here in this moment, this is a sacred moment. And that which is common, that which is profane, should be out and should be left out for a period of time because this moment, this moment is sacred. And it's so easy to continue to talk about technology, I suppose. Some of us have a discipline of just going off and getting away. And whatever that space is, whatever that time is, you you turn the email off. You turn the computer down. You shut off the phone because it's a sacred, holy place. And in that sacred and holy place, you are finding life. And it's in that moment that you say, all those things that are profane, all those things that are common, they are going to be set aside because right here, right now, in this space, God is going to speak. Life is going to be re-invited into my life through God. Communing with God through spiritual disciplines, through whatever. Consider, my friends, those spaces maybe that need those boundaries once again. Those moments in your life, or even those rooms in your life, those spaces in your life that need that sacredness. And the profane and the unclean are set aside. So, what about the days? The days that are different for girls and for boys? Let me give you a couple answers that several people have debated about. One, the boys are circumcised on the eighth day. Some commentators have suggested that the boys also have their ritual impurity because of their circumcision or that the purity of the woman needs to end at that seven days for the boys so that the boy can be circumcised. That's one possibility. There's been some medical commentators, um, one particular Jewish commentator that I read that suggested that in some particular births, girls may also have a discharge during birth, which means that you're not only spending that time for purifying the mother, you're also spending that time for purifying the daughter. There's some that have suggested, and I think, you know, we have some doctors in the room that can confirm or deny this, that the discharge from the woman is actually greater when you're having a girl versus a boy. I haven't found anything to substantiate that, but I have found that as a commentary. One commentary that I thought was really intriguing is that for the, if we're talking about giving birth to life, then maybe the ritual purity time is double for the mother because she is giving birth to someone who is also capable of giving life. Here's my answer. <laughs> we have no clue. And I've read read so many different commentaries and suggestions for a variety of different things. Rabbi Chaim is here. Go ask him. I'm putting you on the spot, Rabbi Chaim. (laughs) You can figure it out. You agree with me? (laughs) Amen. This begins and inaugurates the beautiful community that argues and wrestles together. And the beautiful way in which we address a text like this that we believe is sacred and holy, that we believe actually can give us life, and where you will come up with an interpretation that I've never thought or never heard, and you will come up with an interpretation I've never thought, and you will come up with a different interpretation, and our community is enlivened and enriched by it. In other words, the community itself now becomes the sacred as we enter into wrestling with these these texts. So I'm going to encourage you and challenge you Why are those numbers different? What are some possibilities? The text doesn't say. Commentators throughout the last 2,000 years have had all sorts of different interpretations. Let's come up with some more, shall we? The sacred, the profane. Holy places, common places. Let us go together and figure out how to keep those sacred places sacred and those common places common. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have. I bless you so much for us uh, and this community being willing to wrestle and struggle together. And I pray that as we do, our community and our lives are enriched and enlivened. God, I just want to pray for those of us listening to this who really are struggling with the profane and the common creeping in ever so subtly, maybe abruptly, into those sacred and holy spaces. Whether it's our spiritual discipline time, whether it's time with our children, uh, whether it's time with friends or family, whatever it is, God, would you convict us once again that there are some things that are unclean, impure, that do not belong in those places? Help us to put a boundary around them again, and to find again life, your life, in those sacred and holy places. And we pray in your name. Amen.